The holidays are a busy time. I'm cleaning, shopping, decorating, and working. Normally, dinner would fall behind, but not when I use Blue Apron. The fresh, pre-portioned ingredients, easy-to-follow recipes, and step-by-step instructions mean that I'm serving short rib burgers with a hoppy cheddar sauce on a pretzel bun, or seared steaks and thyme pan sauce with mashed potatoes, green beans, and crispy shallots. Best of all, dinner is ready in less than 45 minutes and without a trip to the store. And I can customize the menu so I'm serving a meal the whole family will enjoy. Blue Apron is treating already gone listeners to their first dinner, a $30 value, if you visit blueapron.com slash already gone. Check out this week's menu and get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. If you are a regular listener of the show, then you know how much I love sharing bits of history and geography along with the case itself. I recently came across a Michigan author with a true crime book who shares my philosophy. I read her book, The Witch of Del Rey, and I knew I had to have her on the podcast for a true crime broadcast. It's been a while since we've done a broadcast, and it's a great way to help close out 2017. Before we start the interview, a couple of housekeeping items. If you're a Patreon supporter, I have suspended the Patreon account and you will not be billed in January. As I am on hiatus starting December 15th, I thought that you deserved a break as well. There will be new content on Patreon again in February, and I will send out any Patreon rewards this month before the hiatus. If you would like to support the show, visit patreon.com slash already gone. Also, next week, December 14th, is the last episode of 2017. I am so pleased that you decided to join me for the ride, and I look forward to sharing cases with you in the new year. I'm researching an unsolved murder from Dearborn Heights in 1992 and the tragic murder of a Beaumont Hospital nurse back in 1990. Before we speak with author Karen Dibus, a quick word from our sponsor. CanvasPeople.com is an easy-to-use photo-to-canvas service that takes your favorite pictures and turns them into beautiful artwork for you to enjoy. When I first learned of CanvasPeople.com, I sent them a photo from my wedding, and they returned a beautiful canvas for me to display. Join the millions of happy CanvasPeople.com customers today. Send your favorite image and receive a high-quality canvas made in the USA with fast shipping. Canvas People is a perfect gift for the holidays. Visit CanvasPeople.com and enter code GONE at checkout to receive a free 11 by 14 canvas. You just pay shipping. That's a savings of $69.99. That's CanvasPeople.com. Promo code GONE. So, Karen, go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, please. My name is Karen Dibus. I'm a Metro Detroit freelance writer and reporter, and I also am author of four local history books about Detroit and its neighborhoods. 
Great. Well, thank you for being with us today. This is um, what I call a true crime broadcast, where I get to talk with another woman who is working with true crime. And I've done a few of these previously, and they're one of my favorite things to do. It's been a while since I've been able to do one. So I'm excited to have you on. And today we're going to be talking about The Witch of Del Rey, which is your most recent book. But before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about your previous books? Yes. I'm author of two previous books to The Witch of Del Rey. The first one is called The Ford Wyoming Drive-In, Cars, Candy, and Canoodling in the Motor City. And that one is a history of Dearborn's Ford Wyoming Drive-In. It was built in the early 50s and was one of the first drive-ins to go in around Metro Detroit. It is the only one that was in a urban setting or in a city and right. remains one of the few left in the state of Michigan. In fact, one of, is the only one now in the Metro Detroit area. So it's the last of its kind. And so this told the story of how it was built and why the family that put it together and then the second owner who is still owns it He's in his late 90s, and wow. he still runs as much as he can from his home and with his very loyal secretary and staff. Uh, this year-round drive-in. So in the winter, it might be only open on the weekends, but during the summer, it's seven days. Okay. And so I always let people know it's still very vibrant, still very much open and well-attended. The other book is called Better Made in Michigan, the salty story of Detroit's best chip. Yeah, I love is, those. <laughs> that one is, I call it the potato chip book, just so that yes. Better Made doesn't get the full billing. But right. it tells the history of Better Made Potato Chips, which is a Detroit-based chip manufacturer. And they are throughout the whole book because they have the longest history of potato chip manufacturing in the city. But at one time, there were 20-plus potato chip companies in Detroit and in some of the suburbs. They were very popular and had all these different kind of techniques of making their chips. So each one was a little bit different, had a different sort of flavor and personality. So there's Vita Boy and Wolverine and Crunchy and wonderful chips out of a company called New Era, which eventually merged with Fritos and then became part of Frito-Lay. So if you prefer Lay's potato chips, there's still a little bit of a Detroit company in that bigger national brand. So that was a lot of fun, being able to tell the story of how chip manufacturers grew up around this, this auto industry that was in Detroit and very unique to our food history, you know, much like Fago and, right. and Saunders and all these other beloved names is, of course, better made. Yes, my, they're my favorite. I would have them any day over any other chip. I, I will tell them. you, and that is a good reason, is that they are such a quality product and they really are a unique thing to Detroit and how they're made. You know, potato chip potatoes are different than store-bought potatoes, and the oil that they use is a little better quality than the average, and... There's a good reason to like them more than that, than even Lay's, bless its heart. <laughs> <laughs> and then you took sort of a dark turn with The Witch. This was one that when it came my way, I couldn't resist giving it a try because the story was so spectacular. And I went to the publisher, which is the History Press, and they do two true crime books. 
so they were willing to look at it and they asked the same question they're like is this something that you feel is is the direction you want to take because I had kind of been quirky up to that point you know I yeah. was a joke I, I wrote a book about a building and a business so the drive-ins and better made right and one of these things is not like the others exactly that but I will say just as my own background I've always been a true crime fan I'm fascinated by the stories of like behavioral science uh, like the study of serial killers and things like that. I just find it an interesting thing to watch for entertainment. So like forensic shows, 2020, oh, yeah. those yeah. kind of things have always been in my wheelhouse. So this one was like, all right, let me give this a shot and see how it goes because I came at it from more of a journalistic or uh, reporting angle. Right. So I knew I could tell her story and try to be accurate because there, the woman in question who's the focus of the Witch of Del Rey, there's a lot of what I would call misinformation about her. So I saw it as a chance to say, okay, let's let's come at it from a reporting standpoint and then add the storytelling elements and really try to tell this in a fictional or, you know, more of an enjoyable, entertaining way while still portraying the facts of the case. So to me, it, it really is a book that stretched me as a writer, but also hopefully the readers can enjoy from the standpoint of it tells both true crime, a really interesting time in Detroit, so you get some history, and then you also get it kind of reading like a narrative nonfiction book. So it's more of a, a entertainment experience of reading it. I found it, I, I read the book, and I found it very engaging, and what really got me and my listeners will recognize this from the podcast, is I like to know what became of all the players. Yes. Where did everybody go? <laughs> Especially when covering an older case. And not only did you locate some really interesting characters in John Whitman, the detective, there was a female reporter, which is super unusual. There was a female lawyer, which is super unusual. Because this, this story takes place mostly in the 30s, during the Depression, a tough time for Detroit, and then you evolve it out into the 40s and 50s when the city is booming again, but you also give us these really fascinating, meaty characters to engage with. And I exactly. and you you spin them all the way out. We get to know where you know what and what happened to them, and where their lives went, what path their lives took. And I loved that. I truly grew to love these characters. Not only because some of them are so heroic, like you mentioned, the female reporter and the female attorney in particular, Vera Brown and Aileen Klutz, are in my top five women mentors, as it were now. But the people who had kind of a a challenging time in their lives, uh, yeah. who had a lot of ups and downs, sort of, in my mind, as the writer and then the reader of the story, vindicate themselves in some ways. They they grow as characters and as human beings, and I can't help but love them for all their faults. You know, they're they're not villains in the pure sense. They do some terrible things, but they also go and redeem themselves, even from Rose's first lawyer, who's not exactly the best legal mind, bless his heart. <laughs> and then you have the assistant prosecutor turned prosecutor who ends up vindicating the two people he convicts. Right. Unbelievable twists that I didn't see coming when I initially said, this is a story I want to write. So I was very much 
happy to follow their whole lives and see where they ended up. And I needed that as a reader in a way, too. I wanted to know where they ended up, especially because these are real, living, breathing human beings whose relatives are still, you know, somewhere going forward. And I'd like them to not only see that these people existed and and were part of Detroit history, but how did they have lasting impacts, especially in the case of that prosecutor, Duncan McRae? He's kind of a living history lesson that very much has a a hand in Detroit today, in my opinion. So can you give, I don't want to give it all away because I really enjoyed it. And I think this is a book my listeners would really enjoy. And I also want to say that I reached out to you. You didn't, your publisher didn't call me, you know, you didn't call me. I found out about this book and went, I want to know more about this. And I called you. Absolutely. And I I thank you for all those kind words and for reaching out, because to me, this is a story I'm so happy to share. It starts in 1931. It's a hot August in Detroit. It's the midst of Prohibition and the Great Depression. So the city is really struggling. There's no safety belt for people or, you know, safety precautions and helping them get through this time. There's, you know, soup kitchens and that's about it. Right. And in the midst of that, this woman who is known to her neighbors as the Witch of Delray, they already have kind of their eye on her because there's been a lot of coming and going from her home, which serves as a boarding house. And one of the men that live in her house falls suspiciously, they say, from a window And she's turned into police by a neighbor. They come out to investigate, and they determine that a crime has happened, that perhaps there was a murder in this home. And so Rose Veras and her son, Bill, are accused of killing this middle-aged boarder named Steve Mack. And this becomes kind of a, I would argue, a trial of the century for Detroit. Not only is it something that's fascinating to a local audience, because it happens, you know, right in the heart of a very popular neighborhood uh, known as Del Rey. But it also then gets national attention because the reporters in the area really take off with it. Once they've got that nickname, the Witch of Del Rey, there's a fascination to it. Oh, that's and a headline. Actually, that, that's yeah, a headline grabber right there with the Witch of Del Rey. I mean, I'm going to read that even today if you can give me a good nickname to a story. Right. So it goes national, and people are following what happened to her. And kind of this this trial, I'm going to guess, much like many crime stories of its day, because this is the height of Rum Runners and the Purple Gang and Al Capone, you know, all these, these names are right there alongside Roses. They follow along with what happens. And so she's convicted of the crime. So in August, she's arrested. By October, she's in jail for life, as well as her 18-year-old son. Right. And they spend the next decade in prison in Michigan. And they always maintain their innocence, and so does their sibling or the brother, this young man named Gabriel. And he kind of carries the torch for the family of how am I going to get them out of prison. And so the story spins forward into the 40s of Detroit, which is, again, another turbulent time with World yes. War II and a lot of urban renewal programs that later proved to be fairly disastrous but get their start then. You see them go to, to a second trial to, you know, are they really guilty of this crime or were they railroaded? 
And really, I would argue there could be evidence for both sides. So I like to leave it up to the reader to decide, was she guilty or was she innocent of this crime of killing this guy that lived in her house? You know, this this guy that's trying to make good for his family. He's from Hungary. He's living here alone. And she's supposed to be his caretaker, supposed to help him out a little bit. But did she actually plot to murder him to make some insurance money? It, it re- and then again, the cast of characters that are built up around this murder case could not, to me, be more fascinating because they not only were they real human beings, but they were flawed and yet had some of the best intentions. And so there's a lot of tug of war and tension of what's going to happen in the story to me. Yes. And I also liked, you know, we talked about the, the characters that you mentioned, the female reporters, the John Whitman, who was the detective. But I also felt that Del Rey as a neighborhood was a great character. And you touched on some of the big things happening in Detroit. You talked briefly about the 1943 race riots, which a lot of people don't even know that when you say riots in Detroit, people think 1967. Well, yes, but there was also 1943 when 34 people died. And, you know, you touch on these these very important historical moments and these places, and it just, it really sets a tone. I just, I liked it. (laughs) I had at one point thought about doing a project on the 1943 riot, and there's some very good books written about the topic, so I thought, okay, I'm going to let that go, and then a friend of mine is working on a book, so I'm so happy someone found uh, the inspiration to go back to that moment, because there's actually monuments in the city for the victims of that riot. And I would come upon them in doing research or just traveling around Detroit. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a moment in Detroit history that that really, again, if you are a lover of this city and this region and you want to understand Detroit, it's helpful to go back to these moments and say, okay, this is where some of the things that are happening now have their roots. And if we can understand them or at least try to get into them, and put ourselves in these moments of the history of the city, you are that much richer a person and a visitor and or resident when you are a part of what's happening now. Agreed. I find this Detroit endlessly fascinating for that reason. Uh, agreed completely. Oh, so in the book, you go over, you provide the address on Medina Street in Del Rey where the crime took place. And I went on Google Maps and the house isn't there, but there are still a couple houses on that street and you can see you know you can see that the the street there's not even a neighborhood which is kind of sad to me but it was almost 100 years ago and those houses um you know they weren't necessarily built to last but what the the house is a bit of a character in the book too mm-hmm. and plays an important part can you tell us a little bit about the house that's one thing I, I spent a lot of time when I was doing the research studying the photos. And believe it or not, my screensaver on my computer is Rose's house Aww. from a photo from the newspapers back in that day because I feel like, like you say, there's a psychic energy to her residence. Like this is something that if you feel like if you can understand her house and how people lived in Delray, you can somewhat get your head around this this moment. But it was a... Everywhere I've heard described from like a one-and-a-half-story style bungalow to a two-story. So I guess it depends on how you looked at the home because that attic space was not necessarily livable. Right. It was a smaller 
compact home because, again, this is pre-World War II when we have a big housing boom in Detroit, but at the same time, Detroit has always had more single-family home residences than any other place. So, like, we were the home of the middle class. Everybody could have a house. And like most neighborhoods, but Delray in particular, people were so house proud. So that's so important to know about this area. It, it was a village before it got annexed into Detroit. So it really had an identity. And they were forward thinking. They, a lot of progress happened there because of the commercial development in Delray. So they had paved streets and street lights and a hospital, you know, very extremely uh, unique to a neighborhood setting. Because of Solve, one of the big yes. plants there had invested in making it a real like factory town feel, almost yes. like it would be around the Rouge factory or Henry Ford's developments. And so people had like front yard gardens, and they actually washed their sidewalks. It wouldn't just be oh, let's geez. sweep the sidewalk. They washed them. And this was not only a Hungarian thing, but all the different nationalities and cultures that lived in Del Rey had a similar aesthetic just extraordinarily pleased and proud of most of them being immigrants. This is their first home in America, and they're going to take care of it and honor it and cherish it. So Rose is very much of this culture. You know, not only is she kind of like a self-made woman, but this is a home that means everything to her because she's raising her sons there. And she's become a widow just a few years before this happens, this this incident in her life. She's holding things together. I mean, I can only imagine if I got to sit down at a table with her and talk, what kind of stories could she tell about not only raising three sons on her own and losing a husband, but this idea of she's trying to keep food on the table and uh, maintain some sort of pride. Well, when we do find out in the book at one point that everything, she's lost almost everything. And yet she is trying so hard to keep it all together. Right. And she and relies like, on those borders to keep yeah. food on the table and, and keep her solvent. I think the neighbors saw that as success and or that she was making more money than they were. And I do feel like there was a neighborhood jealousy around that. Now, Rose maybe didn't do anything to stamp that down. Maybe she wasn't as humble maybe as she could have been. And I think that's where the witch nickname came from, that maybe the jealousy of her perceived success right. made the neighbors not necessarily like her, and then maybe she didn't do anything to facilitate that. You know, So here's this classic neighborhood squabble that turns just so dark and a vortex that pulls everybody into it and affects them for you know decades to come. Everybody who, who testifies is somewhat, has an imprint on them of what happened. And, the, the, you know, everything from the police officers and the prosecutors, there is a lingering feeling of, like, did we do the right thing in this case? So everything from the neighborhood itself to the people who live there and then the people who come and go from there, the reporters and the police officers, all seem to feel that same energy. Like, what happened that day and... Did we do the right thing? Now, if someone was interested in purchasing this book, what is the best way to do that? Well, it's definitely available in some of the all the traditional methods, you know, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and the History Press itself, as well as wonderful independent bookstores that I want 100% support. A lot of them will carry the book from Pages in Detroit to Bookbeat in Oak Park. 
So a lot of the places that have Detroit books, like Pure Detroit and the DIA, are kind enough to carry this. Okay. So people can look about and see where their favorite bookseller is. Um, and I do book events in the area, so as I have them, I know I have a Facebook page for the book. I'll post where I'll be, and okay. people can ask questions and get a copy if they're interested. I will share that uh, a link to your page on oh, my page so that if, if readers want to find you. And you have a new book coming. Can you tell us yeah. about that? In the spring of 2018, through the Reedy Press, they do a lot of I would call travel books or tourism books. And so a friend of mine wrote one, and she recommended me for this title called Secret Detroit. So that was my summer project, I joke, is I went to, they asked for 90 locations. I probably went to 150, but narrowed it down to 90 locations around the city that I would consider unusual, uh, extraordinary, weird, strange, you know, (laughs) whatever adjective you want to use. But maybe people aren't aware are here. Right. And so we have a lot of historical monuments. So everything from the first governor of the state of Michigan is buried in a park in Detroit. Oh. Crazy stuff like that, which Emily Elliott Bragg first found out about, so to speak, or shared, but I'm happy to further report in this book, to the only marble lighthouse in North America on Belle Isle, which is named for a guy who created somewhat the Detroit River's uh, Livingston Channel. Uh, which is very important to our shipping and yes. other things. So, like, all these things that I had no idea existed in Detroit or I'd heard of and kind of you file it in the back of your mind of, well, I'll, re- I'll read up on that someday. I went and found out the stories of and visited all summer oh, long and to put together <laughs> Secret Detroit. So I tell people, for me, it's a checklist book. Right. You know, if you haven't been there yet, this is a great book to take around or, you know, throw it in the car with you as you are on your travels and say, hey, you know, we're bored today. Let's go see these places. I made a real point of trying to make sure they were free or low cost as well so families can do them. And I took my kids on the majority of these trips. So it became our summer vacation itinerary. So you can really learn the history of a 300-plus-year-old city through the lens of this book and all the locations in the city that you can go see and experience. Because I found actually going to the locations, mm-hmm. for me, was life-changing in a way because you grasp much more, again, the depth and breadth of the history of the city and the people who made it and the yeah. people still there today yeah. who are maintaining it and, in fact, reviving it. So a lot of these historical homes that were places where important Supreme Court cases took place are still being lived in and maintained for future generations to see and experience. So like when you go to Austin Sweet's house and stand out in front of it and you realize, you know, in 1925, he was one of the first people to break these covenants that said, you know, black people can't live in this neighborhood. And this doctor said, I will live the American dream and I will live in this house with my family and, you know, had to stand trial for protecting his home. You stand in front of that house and you feel yeah. changed. You feel the, the warmth of that home and why he wanted it and why his wife wanted to live there with him. And it is really spectacular. So I hope people would find Secret Detroit as something that can say, hey, not only did I learn a little bit about the city, but I went and saw these things and, and we all gained something from that. And again, invest further in, in learning about, you know, if not Detroit, the places they live in. And I'm going to ask sort of a lighthearted question. Absolutely. My favorite strange place in Detroit is the Hurlbut Memorial Gate. Yes! 
<laughs> did you talk about I, Hurlbutt? I did. I oh, did. Good. And again, a, a friend of mine is a guy named Dan Austin, and he is a spectacular writer and historian of Detroit's buildings. And so through his research and my own research, was able to see that that was a, a gate to a beautiful park yes. in Detroit. And that because of concerns of safety, they kind of shuttered the whole facility, but the gate is what remains. And it's gorgeous. It's spectacular. And I love that called... there's like troughs for horses to drink out yes. of in front of the gate. And, and you drive along so Jefferson, and there is this beautiful edifice, and you're like, what is in the world is that? That's how I came across it. I was driving up to Pawabuk Pottery yes. and saw, I'm like, what? And I pulled over and got out of my car, and it's not the best neighborhood, but I, I had to know what it was. Exactly that. And it's called Hurlbutt, which is hilarious. Yeah, and that's oh. the best part, too, is that once you find out that he was such a contributor to the city, a lot of these gentlemen of the day left their legacies to build monuments, I guess, yeah. themselves, granted, but for the city, you know, like James Scott, the Scott Fountain on Belle Isle, another right. Amy Elliott Bragg story. But it's a wonderful thing to see these lasting monuments and that there are people currently today who are artisans, keeping these monuments together. So there's a gentleman who has a facility over by Eastern Market. He's kind of the Hurlbert uh, gatekeeper, for lack of a better description. Okay. So you you have all these people tied in to maintaining these places as well. So I love hearing that people have, again, put their money and their time and their talent into Detroit and make sure that our architecture is maintained and kept as beautiful as it was when it was built. So that gate is just, to me, a wonderful discovery. You drive past it a million times, you never think to stop and look, but if you do, it's, oh, it's well gorgeous. worth the journey. Yes. It's just a stunning part of the city. It is. Is there anything else that you would like to cover or mention or talk about that we didn't get to? Well, if the, I will throw this out here because this is how some of my book ideas have come up. If anybody knows of some great stories that they want told about the city of Detroit, I am looking for my next book. So I'm doing the research right now and having a lot of fun investigating both true crime options but also just great history stories. So if anybody wants to find one, me or one of my books on Facebook and throw an idea my way, I am open. This is an amazing state for its stories. Yes. A lot of things keep coming back either to Michigan or Detroit, and it amazes me uh, what we can talk about. And I love, like, I'm thinking about, like, the 50s or the 70s as potential decades to study because I feel like I don't know enough about those periods. And there is that, like, love of World War II Mm -hmm. and, you know, the the times of the bankruptcy, for example. A lot of books about those eras. So I'm like, ooh, this could be fun. We could have some some interesting times. And I'd love to see if we could find some cases to revisit. I'm leaning towards staying in this true crime area only because it is, it's simply fascinating and you can't get enough. I love it. That's awesome. I know I have a lot of listeners that are either current Detroiters or former Detroiters, and they miss Detroit, so they get a little bit of a trip home sometimes listening to episodes of the podcast. So, uh, again, I will share your information, your contact information on my Facebook page and in the show notes so that if people want to check you out, they have that option. I appreciate it, and thank you so much for the interest and the kind words. I am thrilled. Oh, I'm so happy that you agreed to come on. I enjoyed the book, and I think it's a great story. And and not only is it a fascinating little true crime story, but it's also a nice visit back to old Detroit and and what she was like 
75, 80 years ago. It's hard to believe. I feel like these people are so real that it, it floors me that it's that long ago. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it, and I will absolutely, Karen, share all the you know all of the stuff. You can follow author Karen Dibus on Facebook, and check out her book, The Witch of Del Rey, at your favorite Detroit area bookstore, or online at Amazon.com. I will be back next week with one final episode for the year, and then the show will return in late January 2018. We will be looking at several open, unsolved murders from the Detroit area and revisiting cases that made the headlines. I look forward to sharing these stories with you. Support the show by visiting our sponsors, blueapron.com. Check out this week's menu and get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Canvaspeople.com. Normally, an 11 by 14 canvas is $69.99. For a limited time, you can get one free 11 by 14 canvas. You just pay shipping. To get this amazing deal, you have to go to canvaspeople.com and use code GONE at checkout. That's canvaspeople.com. Promo code GONE. If you have comments, questions, or feedback about this case or others shared here, you can email me host at alreadygonepodcast.com. Find me on Twitter at alreadygonepod or check out the show on Facebook. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I wish you every happiness during the holidays and please be safe. <laughs>